Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 352. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Great show today. Great show. I'll tell you what's coming in. First up, we have a story by Jeffrey Ford. The Prelates Commission. That's narrated by Rajan Khanna. Then we have, right at the end, we have a little section that I've put in there by Mr... Mark Zickery, Mr. Sci-Fi. Mark has got this little YouTube spot there now. He's, please go over there and subscribe to it. Mr. Sci-Fi, Mark, who's doing, who, or who is doing Space Command, he raised the Kickstarter, which just raised an amazing amount of money. Just staggering. And they're going to, you know, they're, like you say, they're getting together now and making Space Command. But Mark also does... Mr. Sci-Fi, which is a YouTube channel, and they're just like three, four, five, six minute little slots, you know, Mark sitting in his car actually talking about science fiction and just the history Mark's got. So I'm going to play one of them and I'll have a little chat afterwards as well. So that is what's coming into day show. But it is the first of the month and I just wanted to let you have a look at this month's artwork. Oh man, it's what science fiction is. It's by Stefan Martinair. I get a little heads up about Stefan. Stefan Martinet is an acclaimed multi-award winning science fiction and fantasy artist. In 2012, Stefan has been voted one of the 50th most inspirational artists by Imagine FX magazine. Stefan has worked as a director, art director, concept artist in film, animation, video games, theme parks and book covers. He was the first art director for games Mist 5, Stranglehold, and the visually acclaimed game Rage. He is also an accomplished concept illustrator who has worked on movies such as Guardians of the Galaxies, 
300 Rise of an Empire, Total Recall 2012, Tron Legacy, Knowing, iRobot, Star Wars 2 and 3, Virus, Red Planet, Sphere and Time Machine and the up and coming Avengers Age of Ultron. Stefan regularly does lectures and workshops in the US and abroad and is also an advisory board member of the CG Society. And like I say, when you see this bit of artwork, man, it just takes your breath away, to be quite honest. It's fantastic. Stefan, thank you so much for this. Please go out and have a look at that. I'll try and put it in everywhere so you can see. It's on Facebook. It'll be in the feed. It's just staggering. So first up, we're going to jump straight into the main fiction by Jeffrey Ford. Prelates Commission. Jeffrey Ford is the author of three previous story collections and eight previous novels, including the Edgar Award winning The Girl in the Glass and the Shirley Jackson Award winning The Shadow Year. A former professor of writing, early American literature, Ford now writes full time in Ohio where he lives with his wife. This story came out in Subterranean in the Winter Edition 2014, edited by Jonathan Strand, Subterranean Press. If you're interested, what else is in that collection is there's a Karen Joy Fowler story, Ellen Clegis, KJ Parker, Bruce Sterling, Greg Egan. There you go. Put a link on to Subterranean Press as well so you can just have a little look at that. And this story is narrated by Raja Khanna. Rajan is a graduate of the 2008 Clarion West Writers Workshop and a member of that New York-based writing group Altered Fluid, one of the most inspirational ones out there now. His fiction has appeared in forthcoming in Shimmer Magazine, Good, The Way of the Wizard, amongst others. He was received honourably mentioned in this year's Best Fantasy and Horror and year's Best Science Fiction. He is represented by Joe Bonte from the Barry Goldbach Literacy Agency. He sometimes writes articles for Tor.com and occasionally narrates podcasts for Podcast Lightspeed and Pseudopod. Rajan also writes about wine, beer and spirits at the FermentedAdventures.com. He currently lives in New York City. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Prelates Commission by Jeffrey Ford. Read by Rajan Khanna. The new fresco that graced the inner dome of the Cathedral of St. Elovisus was a masterpiece of perspective and illusion. The fall of the rebel angels into hell. They hurtled downward through an aquamarine sky swirled with pale pink clouds, their feathers disintegrating in the descent, their features growing ever more monstrous. Some, just ejected from paradise, appeared small and vastly distant, while the progressively larger ones took on weight and velocity. The largest seemed just above the viewer, desperately clawing the sky, eyes wide with the discovery of gravity, about to slam into the marble floor, which was inlaid with a deep and spiraling scene of hell. At the center of the inner dome above was an illuminated circle where one could glimpse, as if from the bottom of a well, the enormous angry face of God. The prelate who oversaw the project for the church, had watched closely the processes of the master, Codalan, the mixing of the plaster and lime, the ciphering of how much could be painted in a day, and the rendering of the marvelous figures. The look in the eyes of any who beheld it revealed its genius. Codalan had also designed the dome itself, an engineering feat of equal astonishment, but it wasn't the great artist that the prelate gave most of his attention to. 
there was an assistant to the master, a very young man named Talajui, who hailed from the northern forest of the realm. The master had turned over to him the responsibility for the rendering of the figures. After the first day of painting, it was clear the young man was a prodigy. The expressions and postures of the falling angels were mesmerizing. Even the mere rendering of the hands, fingers clutching at nothing, made the prelate sense them clutching his soul. Word of the great work spread quickly, and in the months following its completion, throngs came to the cathedral from all corners of the realm to gaze first upward, and then down into the illusion of the abyss. Sinners were brought to their knees, and quite a few converted on the spot. The prelate, of course, took much of the credit for the fresco, but there was still a surplus to go around, and the master and even Talajui were given appropriate shares. In having witnessed the creation of a masterpiece, the prelate, over the five years it took them to paint the inner dome, slowly conceived of his own magnificent project, one no less intricate than the dome, nor less angry than God. Codalan had already begun planning for his next work, a marble sculpture of the Holy Ghost. The ineffable made manifest in stone, was how he put it to his patron at the house of Walsnir. He and Talajui spent days conspiring just how to render a spirit in marble. Work went along well for two weeks, and then the young man was summoned to a meeting one rainy afternoon at the prelate's chambers. He feared he had been called in due to his recent nightly conduct of drinking and fighting. He'd felt the need for a certain wildness, a release from the concentration on the fresco. When he reached the cathedral, he stood beneath his handiwork and marveled, his neck craning back till it ached. Suddenly he felt a hand upon his shoulder, and the words, spoken softly, Don't forget what's beneath your feet. Talajui looked down into hell before turning to see who touched him. It was the prelate. I have a mission for you, said His Holiness. The young man's heart sank as he knew that whatever was asked of him he could not refuse. A mission from God. Follow me to my chambers and I'll explain. The office of the prelate was carpeted and hung in red velvet. They sat in hand-carved wooden thrones, the older man and younger on either side of an ornate desk. Each had a goblet of honeyed wine, and each a lit roll of tobacco from the distant islands of night. I was much impressed by your work on the inner dome, said the prelate. Thank you, your holiness, but I owe my inspiration to the master, Codalan. This is where you're wrong, my son. You owe it to God. Your gift is from heaven, and now you are called upon by the church to serve the Almighty. Yes, your holiness. You will go on a journey. Talajui took the tobacco from his lips and said, But we've just begun a new commission for the Walsniers. The old man leaned forward across his desk and fixed the artist with a withering stare. His pointy fingernail twice tapped hard wood. The house of Walsnir is a dung pile. Its members feast on shit. Do you understand? Yes, your holiness. Now I have something that will test your talents to the limit. As an artist and a man of the church, you can't refuse. Talajui nodded. I want you to go forth into the world, find the devil, and paint his portrait. The young man could not suppress a laugh. Your arrogance will be your undoing, said the prelate. No, your holiness, I laugh with joy that you might think me capable of such a feat. 
how exactly am I to locate the devil? Men such as you find the devil every day. He's always gracious about stopping to tempt a sinner. And if I do find him, how will I convince him to sit for me? The church asks not for your questions, but for your action. That's all. Why, though? He is a great trickster with infinite guises. Men and women are defenseless against him. They need to be able to identify the demon, so that they know when he comes for them. I want his true portrait executed with all the art God gave you. Yes, Your Holiness. And when am I to begin my journey? Immediately. We will bequeath you a donkey to carry your supplies, and a bag of gold for expenses. When you complete the portrait, you will be paid handsomely for it. Telejui never actually agreed, but he need say nothing. To refuse the prelate would find him cooking atop a stack of logs and kindling in the town square, his flesh disintegrating into smoke like the feathers of the fallen angels. He finished his tobacco while the old man offered a suggestion. There's a legend that he keeps house in an abandoned summer palace on an island in a lake somewhere amid the Carapace Mountains. The artist nodded humbly, but behind his eyes he made his plan. He'd travel on the church's money for a year, and then when the mystery of the open road lost its charm, he'd simply paint a portrait of the devil from his imagination and make up a story as to how he got the demon to sit for him. The prelate would buy it without a doubt, and still he would be able to return to work on the master's holy ghost. The devil is sly, so stay awake. Yes, your holiness, he said. I leave tonight. Please have someone from the stable bring the donkey around to my place, and I will load the beast with my easel and paints. The prelate tossed a pouch of coins onto the desk. Twelve pieces of gold, he said. It should take you far. And what if I find the devil in the arms of a woman? It's not her arms I'd worry about, said the prelate. And what if I need to break the law to find the devil? More questions? I told you, action. You know what needs to be done. Do it. Let your faith guide you. By the time Talajui left the cathedral, the rain had stopped and he walked through the village of thatched stone homes, over and down the green hills, on a dirt path that was said to have been trod by Adam and Eve as they fled paradise. Out at the edge of things, he came to the master's workshop. The helpers were off to the south, purchasing a block of marble for the coming sculpture. Talajui found Kodolan sitting at his drafting table, his head propped by one fist under his chin, snoring. The window looking out into the meadow was flung open, and a warm breeze carried the buzz of insects, the grief of mourning doves. All was hushed in the huge workshop, motes of marble dust floating in the sunlight. Master, whispered Talajui. The old man stirred and slowly came back from sleep. Yes, said Kodalan, yawning. I wanted to tell you what I realized about the sculpture. It will all depend on light. Only through light can stone become weightless. I've come to tell you I must leave town. What's this? I'm not paying you enough? Kodalan sat straight, fully awake. The prelate has given me a secret mission for the church. The prelate? An imbecile. Yes, but burning at the stake is an inconvenience. The master reflected and then nodded. A worthy argument, he said. I intend to pretend for a year's time, and then end the comedy through my art. Can you delay the wall sneer commission until then? Only if you promise to finish it should I grow too old. Now, what's this secret mission? Forgive me, but I'm sworn to secrecy. 
I leave tonight. Telejui, good to his word, set out at the propitious hour of midnight beneath a silver moon. He wore his cape and wide-brimmed hat. The donkey, Hermes, a slow and cantankerous beast, was piled high with supplies. The journey was not a race, though, and the young man was content to follow the animal's lead. They took the path away from the village into the greater realm. Talajui whistled the simple psalm of St. Ephrisia, and every hundred steps or so Hermes made a sound like a sinner's last breath. A beautiful day broke around the travelers, warm sun and cool breeze, and Talajui decided to sleep. He bedded down in a stand of cedar trees at the top of a tall hill. Wild flowers of white and yellow dotted the needle-strewn floor, and the sunlight through the branches fell soft upon his face. The morning swirled around him, and he dreamed about the Holy Ghost in marble, like a bedsheet on a line rippling in the wind, yet made of stone. It spoke to him in a hollow, holy voice that echoed in the caverns of itself. Your mission is no less important than the work of the bees, it said. Talajui awoke in the late afternoon to the donkey's loud braying. Only when he got to his feet did he realize there was a man standing beside him. It was the hunter, Pervin. He had feathers twisted into his nest of hair, and a string of rabbits over his shoulder, a pheasant tucked into his belt. "'What are you doing out here, Talajui?' he asked. "'I'm on a mission for the church sent by the prelate.' "'You have my pity,' he said. The artist smiled. Do you know of an island in the mountains where the devil lives? Pervin laughed for a long time and then dried his eyes. The prelate is a flagon of lunacy. To the west from here, straight over these hills, find a path that's marked every few leagues by a stone with a cross carved into it. These stones go back to the earliest folk. That pass winds through the mountains. Take it till you come to a barren area next to a lake. You'll see the island and the roof of the palace from the shore. Wait for the tide to go out, and you can walk through shallow water to it. How do you know this? I kill for a living. I've been there. How far must I go? If you start now, you can make it before the weather gets cold. The hunter turned and walked away through the trees. Can you tell me anything about the devil? called Talajui. Nothing you don't already know. The artist and the donkey walked through the mornings of the coming days, and in late afternoon, after a bite to eat, Talajui painted small landscapes to keep his brush adept. At night he smoked nettle mare in his long pipe, and, in the fog that followed, carried on a one-way conversation with Hermes about his dreams of the Holy Ghost. The donkey stared at him with knowing eyes and expressions, gasping last breaths at the perfect moments. There were times during the journey when Talajui would completely forget where he was going, and be taken up by the beauty of the landscape and the sounds of birds that filled the forest to either side of the path. And then there were other instances when he felt a prisoner to the prelate's demand and sorely regretted his time for creation being scattered like dust. On these bad days, he was unsure if he could last a year and began contemplating how the devil should appear in his painting. The images that came to him were fleeting, and soon forgotten as if a spell had been cast to weaken his imagination. It had already grown cold by the time they stood on the edge of a lake the very color of the sky in the fresco as St. Elovisus. A brisk wind blew ashore from the direction of the island a half-mile out. 
From where he stood, Talajui could see the slanted roofs of the Devil's Palace above the barren trunks of oak. The tide was high, so the travelers took shelter beneath a ledge of an enormous boulder, sitting in the sand like an egg in a nest. The artist made a fire, ate a fish he'd caught the day before, and lit his pipe. Hermes stood close to the flames, and every now and then turned to warm a different part of his body. Strange sounds came out of the dark, growling, weeping, and a prolonged laughter that always petered into anguish. Talajui pulled his cape tighter around himself. For a solid hour he was transfixed by what appeared to be someone walking out on the lake. Eventually, it became clear that it was merely an illusion of the starlight, the water, and the wind. Hermes was agitated, braying often, his eyes wide, nostrils flaring, and the artist himself shivered at more than the cold. Sleep was fitful, illuminated not by the presence of the Holy Ghost, but by quick glimpses, shards of a grisly murder. Three times he woke up spitting, and twice he roused enough to hear a distinct whispering, someone out in the dark, feverishly praying. He fled back into sleep as if it were an iron cocoon that would protect him. The morning was overcast, and ever since waking, he couldn't get the taste of ashes off his tongue. After eating a strip of dried venison and drinking the last of his wine, he walked, accompanied by Hermes, to the shore. The tide had definitely gone out, but the wind was cold and the knee-high water frigid. He pulled on the donkey's rope to bring him along, but the beast would have none of it. Cursing Hermes, he dropped the rope and inched forward into the lake. The icy water was startling, and he momentarily lost his breath. It was at this very point that the mystery of the open road lost its charm. He slogged forward, into the wind, his cape quickly soaked by the wavelets breaking against his knees. Halfway through the crossing, a powerful gust lifted the hat from his head and carried it up toward the clouds. It took over an hour for him to reach the shore of the island, which at times seemed to retreat as he grew nearer. He was shivering and blue as he scurried up the beach into the forest. Immediately, he set to gathering kindling and falling branches for a fire, his desperation guiding him. By the time he took the flint from his pocket, his hands were so numb he could hardly hold it. But eventually a fire sprang to life, and he felt relief from the cold. He rested for a time, letting the heat of the flames dry his clothes. In late afternoon, when the sun had partially broken through, he headed in the direction of the abandoned palace. The limestone facade was crumbling, the stained glass windows nearly all broken. Enormous rooms were still furnished with mildewed couches, divans, and rotting chairs. The chandeliers and their chains had turned to rust, the pendants shattered on the floor like a pile of crude salt. Pigeons were living in a wardrobe in one room. A fox growled at him from a fireplace a few rooms later, and the rooms went on and on. Some sections of the palace roof had caved in. The stairs to the second floor were splintered and too rickety to climb. He passed through an inner courtyard where weeds grew to prodigious heights, and then down a colonnade and into another labyrinth of rooms. In one, he found a well-preserved mural. 
It was contained in an archway, a view of the sea, and a wave breaking at the opening from just outside so it appeared the water would rush into the room. Talajui wondered about the days that were spent by those who had once lived there, and about the story as to how the devil had eventually taken it over. The devil, my ass, he finally said, and turned back in order to make it outside before sunset. In his retreat, he passed through the courtyard of weeds, but when re-entering the palace must have chosen a different door, for he couldn't remember traversing the rooms he now passed through. In one, he found the skeleton of a child in a rocking chair, something he was certain he had not passed earlier on his way in. More rooms, as if they were multiplying, and all the while the sun sank lower and the shadows grew more pronounced. Then Talajui was in a hallway of peeling green paint, and at the end of it was a door. His first thought was of escape. He ran to it and opened it wide. Instead of it being an exit, it revealed a set of steps leading down into the darkness of a basement. The smell that rose from that lower floor made him wince and turn away. He was shutting the door when he heard a step of the stairway creak down below in the dark. Then there was a knock, and another creak, and another. Out of the gloom from below appeared a face, pointed at both the crown and the chin, hair and complexion of frosty blue. The wide eyes revealed vertical slits in yellow irises. Horns curled like a ram's jutted from bulging temples. By then, the entire figure of the devil was visible. Hooves, an icy coat, and a sharp smile. The artist backed away slowly, dumbfounded by the reality of legends. The devil reached the top, stepped into the room, and quietly shut the door behind him. A visitor, he said. I don't get many. Talajui tried to compose himself and tell the devil he'd come to paint his portrait, but instead... All he managed to get out was, Why blue? The color of the stillborn, said the fallen angel. I'm an artist. I was told you lived here and was wondering if I might paint your portrait. In a blink, the strange figure before him transformed into that of an old man dressed in fine golden attire. That icicle head had rounded and become more jolly. Tufts of white hair like innocuous summer clouds had sprouted just above the ears. "'What's your game?' asked the devil with a smile on a voice now weighted with age. "'My game? I know the prelate sent you.' Talajui was about to lie, but the old man shook his head in warning. "'Yes, then, the prelate sent me. "'You did the figures of the new fresco in the Cathedral of St. Elovisus.' "'I did.' I've seen and admired them. Then you will allow me to paint you? I might. It must be your true self. I'm not in the habit of showing my true self to the Lord's clay dolls, but I will for a price. What would you have? If you'll kill someone of my choosing, I'll present myself to you in order that you might complete a portrait. Who? First you must agree, and then I'll reveal my choice. I'm no murderer, said Talajui. Not yet. Even if I thought the payoff worth it, I'm skeptical that such a portrait would be worth anything. 
I'm sure you don't always appear as Jack Frost or an old man. The devil laughed. You artists have balls, he growled. But I see your point. I'll make it so that anyone who casts their eyes upon the portrait will know me when I approach, no matter what guise I'm in. You can't get a better deal than that at the market at Cthulhu. Telejui found the devil's offer tempting, and at the moment he knew he was in danger. He took a step back and brought his hands up to cover his face. I'll not murder anyone, he said through his fingers. Not just anyone, but a certain someone, said the devil. When he awoke on the sand of the shore across the lake from the palace island, Hermes was still there. Talajui knew days had passed, but could remember nothing after his encounter with the devil. Lying next to him on the beach, he found a framed blank canvas. He picked it up and added it to Hermes's load. He stretched, took in deep breaths of cold air, shook his head, grabbed the donkey's lead, and headed back towards St. Elovisus. The return road seemed longer than the way out, and the night chills left morning frost in the steaming fields. Winds from the north stabbed through his cloak and hood, and sleep became the act of shivering. No matter the roaring fires he built, there remained a winter chill within. He drew so close to the flames that one night he burned his hand. The pain coursed through him, and in its wake he remembered. The blue devil had his arm around Talajui's shoulders as the painter suffered the coarseness of icicle hair and a bad meat stench. The painting is done, the devil whispered, pointing to the blank canvas on the easel. Take it with you. Kill who I tell you to. The moment your victim's heart stops beating, the canvas will reveal the portrait of my true self to the world. All who see the painting will know me when I approach them. Now, go back to the village and await word from me as to whom I've chosen for you to take. Talajui now recalled how he'd shaken his head and said, No, only to find a moment later that he was nodding and saying, Yes. Then they were on a balcony, and the devil was biting the head off a pigeon that had landed on the rusted railing. Just before the snow came sweeping down from the mountains, the painter and donkey arrived back at St. Elovisus. Talajui wasted no time in going to see the prelate, and it wasn't until he was sitting in the old man's red velvet office, smoking tobacco and drinking honeyed wine, that the chill began to leave him. I thought this might take longer, said the prelate. You mean to tell me that you met the devil and convinced him to sit for his portrait, and completed that painting in a few brief months? You must think me a fool. Hear me out, your holiness, said Talajui. I met the devil in the palace on the island you had told me of. Over a period of days I painted him, but I don't remember everything. While I worked, it was as if I slept. Here's the painting. Talajui lifted the framed canvas from beside his chair and handed it across the desk. The prelate's eyes widened when he saw it was blank. What is this? he said. The painting is there, but you can't see it. It will only be revealed on the condition that I murder someone of the Dark Lord's choosing. I want your permission to kill in the name of the church. The serpent's mind is twisted, said the prelate. Imagination run amok. Yes, of course, kill someone. 
If one person must be lost to save thousands, it shall be done. Do you have a dagger? A dagger I have, but not the courage. When you find out who your victim will be, tell me, and I will help you. Tell the Jew he shook his head, but said, Yes. I will hang the portrait here behind my chair. When you've done the deed, I'll know. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The prelate threw Talajui another bag of coins and blessed him with the sacred signs. Wait, said the painter, what if he tells me to kill you? The prelate sat back and lifted his hands. Then you must. Talajui returned to Catalan's studio and threw himself into the work on the sculpture of the Holy Ghost. The master's workers had long returned with an enormous block of the finest white marble, the perfection of which made the painter forget the devil's portrait. Freezing, snow-covered days passed with Codalan and Talajui sitting at the drawing table, a fire roaring in the hearth, discussing the Walsnir's project. After all my research, I'm convinced no one truly knows precisely what the Holy Ghost is, said the master. You can't see it, said Talajui. And yet it has the power to impregnate. It's a ghost, but not of the dead. Here's what I propose, said Cotillon. I want to create an enormous marble globe that will rest upon a base that will give the illusion that the granite ball is floating in the air. Telejui laughed. It can be done with mirrors. The base must be concave, and the globe must touch it only at a single point. The illusion isn't difficult but balancing the weight of the globe will be. They began work on the sculpture, and the master taught his pupil the art of stone-cutting as they went along. Telejui was a quick study and enjoyed the physical nature of the work. He felt himself growing stronger from the constant weight of the hammer and chisel, and he challenged himself to cut finer and finer slivers of marble until it was as if he was shaving the stone. The day that Cotillan commended him on his technique Talajui caught a chill. It came to him that his enthusiasm and love of learning to work with stone was like a pigeon on the rusted railing of a balcony. 
he pictured the devil lifting it and biting off the head. If true to his legend, he will now tell me I must kill the master, thought the painter. But the days passed, and the devil was silent as the snow. On the shortest day of the year, the sun descending through barren trees, the prelate appeared at the door of Cotolan's shop. One of the workers, hat in hand, ushered him in. The master stopped work and went to speak to him. Eventually he called to tell Ejui who was trying to hide behind the diminished block of marble. He put down his tools and approached. "'Business of the church,' the prelate said to Cotolan. "'I'm dismissed?' asked the master. The holy man nodded. "'Thanks be to God,' he said, and as he walked away they heard him laughing. Soon after, the striking of hammer upon chisel echoed through the workshop. "'I suppose the devil has been struck dumb?' said the prelate. "'You know how busy they say he is,' said Talajui. "'You've heard nothing?' The young man shook his head. "'This must be clear. If the devil tells you to kill, you must without hesitation. And, might I add, without any consideration for your own safety. It's for the greater good and glory. Do you understand?' The old man reached out and grabbed Talajui's wrist. The power of his grip startled them both. "'Yes,' said Talajui. "'Yes,' he nodded nervously. The devil never waits to take a sinner. I expect to see his portrait upon my wall within the coming days. Talajui told Kotalan the story of his journey to the abandoned palace and how the prelate had ordered him to kill for the devil. The master said, He's lost his mind. I know some powerful people in the church outside our village who will hear of this. It will all be taken care of quietly. The young man thanked the master and went back to work. In the following weeks, the smooth sphere revealed itself from marble, and the wonder of that process forced Talajui's holy mission from his mind. He cared only about the perfection of the sculpture. To set his apprentice at ease, Kodalan left the workshop one day and traveled to the city of the Holy See to speak with his acquaintances. The fathers of the church desperately wanted to commission him to build a domed basilica, and this was the weight of his influence. When he returned, he told Talajui, The case has been made to friendly ears, but you know it is the holy sea where the worm turns slowly. If you can dodge the prelate till the spring when the Holy Ghost is finished, I'm sure the matter will be resolved. After that, Kodalan posted one of his men near the door to the workshop to watch for the prelate's carriage, and when it was sighted, the young man would slip out the back across the meadow and into the forest. On the prelate's third impromptu visit, he told Kodalan, You are not above four bundles of kindling and a flame. Interesting, said the master. That's not what I was told at the Holy See. The prelate took a step back, trying to mask his shock, for only in that moment did he realize that Talajui had told his master everything. Instantly, he made an amiable face and said, Please, tell the boy he must come and see me as soon as possible. Of course, your holiness. That night, the master and Talajui, by candlelight, drinking adder wine, stood before the mirrors for the sculpture that had arrived from the floating city, and imitated the prelate in all his jabbering buffoonery. 
Codelin laughed so hard he wet his pants when his apprentice told him he'd ask the holy man, What if the devil tells me to kill you? When he learned the prelate's response, he doubled over and fell to his knees. No more, said the master, gasping for air. Some weeks later, though, when the first buds appeared through the snow and the marble globe floated in midair, complete, the echo of that laughter haunted Telejui. The night on which the Holy Ghost was to be delivered to the Walsniers, an event accompanied by a great feast, Talajui hid in the master's workshop alone. There was no doubt the prelate would be present at the event, and as of that moment there had come no word from either the devil or the Holy See. Without the work of the chisel, all the twisted ramifications of his holy mission came back to him like a hammer blow. He tried to pass the night drawing, but every line seemed wrong, and eventually he left the workshop and headed through the ice-melted streets to the inn of night and day. There, dashing off trams of aqua vitae that slurred his words, he confessed to all present a murder he would eventually commit at the behest of both the prelate and the devil. At the unveiling of the Holy Ghost in a torch-lit garden outside the west wing of the Walsnir's castellated palace, the devil arrived among the guests in the guise of Purvan, the hunter. No one noticed him at first, although all but he wore finery. The serving of lilac liqueur followed directly the dedication of the master's new wonder. The sculpture was roundly applauded, and all were enchanted by its magical illusion. It was then that the hunter broke from a crowd beside the woodwind quartet and rushed at the Holy Ghost. Cotterland, taking in full drafts of praise from the extended Walsnir family, noticed Pervin run and leap, and in an instant calculated the trajectory. It was too late, though. The hunter fell upon the marble globe, tipping it off its single point and riding it down into an explosion of glass that cut him everywhere. His face flopped like bloody strips of bacon as he groaned at the bottom of the glittering mess. Before he died, the devil leaped out of him and, like the ghost of a praying mantis, scaled the wall of the palace to look down upon the chaos. The guests fled screaming, and the master was again on his knees, this time in tears. The evil one smiled briefly, and then a scent caught his attention. Even before Talajui lurched out of the day and night, a spy for the church had slipped away from the inn and gone in search of the prelate. The painter stumbled along the road, weaving and talking to himself. He decided to head toward his cottage instead of the workshop. The one thing he wanted more than even another drink was to lie upon his own bed with the blanket pulled up to his chin and sleep. To the devil with the devil, he said, spat, and shuffled forward with, with determination. Soon enough, he approached his cottage. Its shadow in the dark brought tears to his eyes. He'd not been inside since returning from his journey to find the evil one. He opened the low wooden gate at the edge of the road and stepped one foot on the path to his door. Before taking another step, though, he felt a presence in the road behind him. Turning, he saw a large, darker shadow amid the darkness. From out of the night, Hermes the donkey stepped forward, his lips curling back to reveal all his teeth. Talajui laughed upon finally recognizing the beast. He let the gate shut and walked back into the road. "'What are you doing here?' he said, and petted the side of Hermes's face. 
The donkey was restless and pulled back away. What is it? asked the painter. The creature reared its head back and opened its mouth. I'm here to tell you whom I want you to kill, it said in the devil's voice. Talajui froze and his drunkenness evaporated in an instant. He stood with his mouth open and stared, all his limbs numb. Do you hear me? asked the devil. Talajui shook his head but said, Yes. Listen well, for I want you to kill, he said, but with the next word language exploded into the braying of a donkey. Who? whispered Talajui. Who? I want you to kill, and then more braying. The same repeated again and again, and each time Talajui leaned forward, hoping for the name, but instead heard the screech of an ass. Finally, he drew his dagger, lunged at Hermes, and with a sudden slice cut the animal's throat. Blood spilled onto the road, and still the creature managed to speak it twice more. I want you to kill... It fell while braying, a waning cry that gave way to gurgling. The carcass twitched and wheezed as the devil rose in the steam from the warm blood and floated away on the wind. The painter opened his gate and took the path to his cottage door. He retrieved the key from a chain round his neck. Inside it was cold and musty. Completely sober now and calm, he built a fire in the hearth and sat in his armchair with a blanket round him, staring at the motion of the flames. The next morning, long after the hearth was cold, he was still there in his chair, wrapped in a profound sleep. That was how the soldiers found him, who broke down his door and ripped him from the chair and a dream of the Holy Ghost. They shoved him along through the village to the cathedral, where a pyre of kindling and logs and a crowd had already been gathered. His neighbors drew away when he passed among them. He was roughly ushered up onto the kindling, and the soldiers tied him by the wrist and feet to a pole. The cathedral workers moved quickly, painting the larger wooden logs below with pig fat to make them burn more fiercely. When all was prepared and the captain of the cathedral guard held a lit taper, the charges were read by the monk in good standing. For consorting with the devil, the painter Talajuis condemned to burn at the stake until death. Talajui was paralyzed with fear, his chest heaving for every breath, his heart pounding in his ears. He thought nothing, and though he tried to cry out, not a word found its way. Among the crowd he saw Kodalan and his workers being held at bay by guards with pikes and drawn swords. The master screamed, demanding his apprentice's release. The captain of the guard looked up to the prelate's office window, where the holy man stood dressed in golden robes and triangular hat, the ritual vestments for immolation. The prelate made the sacred signs with his left hand, and the crowd was astonished by the graceful manner with which he moved his wrist and fingers as if in afterthought. The pyre was lit, and the smoke rose. Talajui cried out when his blood began to boil, and his flesh bubbled up and sloughed away to become smoke. His screams made the crowd weak, and they cowered where they stood while the prelate stared down at them from his perch. He waited until the smog obscured his view of them, and then closed the wooden shut over the window and stepped away. He waved his hand in front of his nose in an attempt to clear the stink of burning flesh. Heinous, he said 
and tried to cough the taste out of his mouth. On his way back to his desk, he looked up and from the corner of his eye noticed that the blank canvas was no longer blank. At first he glimpsed only the golden, holy vestments and groaned, It can't be me. He froze in place until it became clear that he wasn't the devil, although the evil one wore the habiliments of someone of his religious station. He studied the portrait for a long time, and after searching his memory, was sure it was no one he knew. The gentleman in the painting was of an advanced age, yet had a jolly aspect, a round face like that of a favorite fat uncle, and tufts of white hair above the ears. He wore a golden brocade jacket pinned with the axe of stone, a medal given by the Holy See to those who had seen combat for the church, both a warrior and a spiritual leader. In the days that followed, the prelate had numerous clergy, nuns included, into his office to see if they could identify the man in the portrait. That's the devil, he'd tell them, and they would nod and back slowly out of the door. If he wasn't mistaken, they seemed more frightened of him than of the painting. With all his attempts to discover who the man was, he managed to find out nothing. Then two weeks to the day after the painter was turned to ash, at the crack of dawn, the very man in the portrait, dressed in gold brocade, rode a white horse through the open gates of the cathedral. Riding with him were three dozen of the Holy See's finest soldiers. The strings Codalan had pulled had finally resulted in something. The soldiers took the prelate away, and the old, rounded man with the jovial disposition, whose portrait already hung behind the prelate's desk, became the new prelate. The old prelate was thrown in a dungeon in the basement of an ancient basilica of the Holy See, where dead saints were entombed. He was fed slops once a day, and his cell had but one spot where the sunlight managed to send a beam through a crack in a floor above. At night, the spirits of the saints tormented him, brought him nightmares full of anguish, and lunged now and then from the dark to bite him. Eventually, the guard who fed him was reassigned to the worksite where Codalan's new dome was to be built. Without sustenance, the old man starved and withered away, as the prelate drew his last labored breaths, the ice-blue devil appeared to him. The poor prelate brought low by his own vanity, said the evil one as the temperature of the room plummeted. You believed you would be the one to outsmart me? Your scheme? A work of genius more resplendent than any cathedral? The old man cowered in a dark corner, praying for death before his soul was snatched. It seems, Your Holiness, that your name has already been forgotten. The prelate prayed as loud as he could, which was little more than a shallow croaking, to try to block the sound of the devil's voice. Do you know why I am here? No, came the whispered reply. To grant your wish, that's what I do. With this, the devil stepped forward, leaned over, dug his icy nails into the gaunt hollow beneath the old man's stubbled chin, and with a laugh ripped upward. There was an agonizing scream that snaked up from beneath the ground and pierced the afternoon. It sounded throughout the holy sea, so that all stopped for a moment in their daily tasks and looked around. The devil held up the face of the prelate, 
which hung loose as a worn leather sack in his cold hands. Pulling it taut, he stared at the mask of flesh, and then vanished with it. At some point in the days that followed, that withered visage replaced the angry face of God upon the inner dome of the cathedral of St. Elovisus. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Jeffrey Fords. Jeff, thank you so much for that. Thank you, honestly, thank you so much. And Rajan, thank you again. What a, what a fantastic, no wonder Jeff likes you. What a great narrator. Thank you so much. So next up is like a little, I've just, well, I've asked Mark to pull the audio from Mr. Sci-Fi's YouTube, YouTube channel and just let you play it. And I hope you'll go over there and subscribe to it. What I want is it'd be nice if this was in like a podcast form as well, so we can just get this delivered when they kind of come out. You know, because quite a number of just like the audio, you know, taking the dogs and walking. And honestly, man, the beauty about Mark is just the knowledge, man. You know, and he, he's, you know, he's, he's got a few, he's packing a few years behind him. So he's, you know, he's got some knowledge, you know, and he just comes out. You know what? The, the perfect thing is, man, it's like listening to like a big brother. He just comes out with like anecdotes, you know, stories, you know, oh, me and Harlan. Oh, I remember when this and this and, you know. He's just a well of knowledge, you know, on the kind of sci-fi industry. And yeah, Mark's kind of coming from the kind of the TV, the film side of it. But it's all to do with literature. And it's just, these are just fantastic. So I'm going to play you one. And hopefully we can get Martin to make them into a podcast as well. Because he just kind of like, see, he's riffing them on in his car. You know, he's got a little webcam there or a phone and recording them. And the knowledge he's got is just staggering. So I'm going to play this now. Hi guys, it's Mark Zickry, Mr. Sci-Fi. I've written for Star Trek Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, Sliders, Twilight Zone Companion, you know the drill if you've watched these videos before. Today we're going to be talking about why science fiction matters. I mean, you know, in the, in the face of all these tragedies going on, the Malaysian flight being shot down over the Ukraine, Israel and Palestine lobbing missiles at each other, all these tragedies in the world, you know, you, you, you might say, well, isn't science fiction with its aliens and robots and androids and all of this, you know, just basically trivial? It's, it's escapism and, 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 and ultimately meaningless. I, I beg to differ. I think, um, speaking as a science fiction writer and as a science fiction fan, I think science fiction is very important. And, and here's why. Because it's very easy to get caught up in the emotion of the moment and the minutia of the moment and the noise of the moment. News is constantly coming our way. And it sometimes feels like there's no um, possibility of resolution. There's no possibility of hope. And, um, and science fiction allows us, I think, to step outside our own uh, society, our own events of the moment, and look at it from a different viewpoint and see perhaps what might be going wrong and, and perhaps forestall it, or alternatively build toward a, a very positive future. And I'll give you a great example of this and a, and a personal example. Uh, when I was a kid, I was a big Star Trek fan, and my mom was dating uh, a fellow named Eddie Leroy, who had been one of the Bowery boys in the movies. He was always the one behind Hunts Hall when they were uh, hatching a, a plan going, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was a really nice guy, and he knew of my uh, uh, penchant for Star Trek as a little 10-year-old. And uh, one day he pulled up and he said, I have a surprise for you. I have somewhere I'm going to take you. And we went to a building and knocked on the door. And, it, and, it, and the person opened up the door, it was their apartment, and it was Nichelle Nichols, and this is when Star Trek was on the air. And she gave me, and I was just blown away, and she gave me a signed photo of herself as Uhura, 
and assigned Star Trek script her Star Trek script. It was circled. The all the Uhura lines were circled. And being a smart ten-year-old, uh, I said, uh, "You got any more of these?" And she reached into her wastebasket, her round file, and uh, pulled out five more scripts and gave them to me. And I still have those scripts. They're Mimeo. They're not Xerox. They're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful scripts. And uh, and I found out years later, uh, as an adult, I ran into Nichelle Nichols and. Uh, and I told her this story, and she explained to me that normally she saved her scripts, and the reason she was throwing them away at that point was she had gotten fed up with the role of Uhura. They, she felt they weren't giving her enough to do, and she was going to quit the show. Now, many of you, of course, know where the story goes from there, because at that point she met Martin Luther King, and he said, you must not quit the show. It is the one African-American role on television that's not a, a menial, that's not a maid or a, you know, or, or someone, or a servant, and you must stay on that show. And she did. And of course, you know, the rest is history. But the fascinating thing, of course, that that story also tells us is, A, Martin Luther King was watching Star Trek, which is pretty cool when you think about it. And he was also, of course, you know, he knew about Rod Serling. I told you earlier about that photo of, of, of Rod and Martin Luther King that's in, uh, in Rod's scrapbooks. But also, when Martin Luther King gave that very famous I Have a Dream speech, and he's saying, I have a dream that someday the sun's of slaveholders and the sons of slaves will sit together at, at the table of, bro of, of brotherhood, he's telling a science fiction story. He's describing a future that hasn't yet happened that he is saying might happen, could happen, if we had the will to make it happen. And so in telling that story of a future that has not arrived is very different from the present he's living in, he's creating a possibility. And that's what we as science fiction writers are doing. We're creating possibility and, and hope and also sometimes a warning. And it was very interesting when, when Ray Bradbury told me that uh, the Fahrenheit 451 was not a dystopic novel. It wasn't 1984 because it was hopeful for all the darkness. And what I'm doing now with Space Command is, is the same. It's, it's hopeful. It's a hopeful story of the future. So, so and then, then the other thing I'll say in closing in terms of science fiction is for many of us who are science fiction fans, the first time we ever saw a black president of the United States was in a science fiction movie or a science fiction novel. And here we are in 2014. And, of course, the first time we ever saw a female president of the United States was in a science fiction book or a science fiction movie. So, uh, so we'll see what, um, what 20, 2016 brings. So for, for, for now, that's all. If you have ideas about how you think science fiction has brought a hopeful vision of the future or forestalled something or just commenting on why science fiction matters, uh, please uh, comment, uh, subscribe, like this uh, channel, the Mr. Sci-Fi channel. We're going to be doing videos you know, often and talking about all of these things. If you want to suggest topics for me to talk about, I'll be happy to, 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 uh, to do those. And again, thanks very much for watching and we'll see you again next time. Take care. Bye-bye. There you go. Hopefully you will go over there and subscribe to Mr. Sci-Fi. And just to put my two pennies worth in, when we're talking like movies and things like that, you know, like say Mark's background is the kind of the movie writing industry. And I've been watching the Amazon kind of episodes of Extant with Halle Berry. And, you know, I love science fiction, but it's just... It's just not working, do you know what I mean? And I'll keep watching it because, like I say, I love science fiction. But and I was ho I was hoping it was going to be fantastic. You know, they've they've got a few shows these the Amazon like exclusive ones that they're actually producing themselves. You know, they've done some cracking ones, and you know they had like say Halle Berry in here. It, they've got some big stars in, but it's just 
you know, and I know why. <laughs> this is my kind of take on it. So I don't know if anyone's seen Extent on Amazon Prime. I've like, see, I've subscribed to that Amazon Prime. So I get it through there. And I think, you know, like Amazon or whoever, you know, whatever, this is kind of my just understanding of it. I've said, right, we need a science fiction story. You know, we want to kind of, you know, one of these exclusive deals where Amazon does the whole show. We want to kind of, let's have a science fiction story. And I think they've just all kind of, you know, high-powered who's, who makes the decisions have went with, you know, science fiction. And I think they've just done it, like, arse front. Do you know what I mean? We, first of all, you want a story. You want characters. Do you know what I mean? I think they've come up with, you know, whoever's done it, that, right, we need to get a science fiction story. Let's think of some cool science fiction stuff. And, yeah, they've got some great science fiction ideas in there, but they've been at the forefront and that's not how it's meant to be. Do you know what I mean? When you kind of want a story. You know, a fantastic example is Flowers for Algernon. You know, it's just character. Daniel Keyes wrote that story. And the whole thing is kind of character-driven story. Sprinkled ever, ever, ever so slightly. With a touch of science fiction. Where this time it's been kind of the science fiction and it's just been sprinkled with a little bit of character depth and it is in my mind so shallow you know extent on character you know yeah there's been some oh and oh i get myself frustrated there's been some flaky flaky kind of plot movement you know structure i'd love to hear what mark thinks of it you know what i mean there was just like an episode it might have been in episode nine or ten where there's a police you know, sheriff goes looking for someone who's missing and goes into the kind of, it's a kind of like a little campsite and she's been shot, this 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 character. And it, the body's hidden in a, you know, and it's just like, oh man, the body's hidden in a barn and there's a blanket. And, but guess what? The feet are sticking out the blanket. You know what I mean? And it's just like, come on, man. You know, like to move it forward, it's so stilted. And so, like, oh, man, like, just, you know, there's no, like, letting your mind work, letting your kind of, your own imagination take you through the story. But, again, my main thing is, it's, they've come up with these cool signs, and, yeah, it's, they are, there's, you know, there's outer aliens, outer space aliens that we're not too sure about, some great, like, medical technical advances in, you know, limbs and everything like that. It's all great science fiction, but that's been at their forefront. You know, that's not how you write science fiction. No, that's how, in my eyes, that's not how you get a good science fiction story. You know, you want a character-driven story. First and foremost, you want this character-driven story, and then you just want to kind of sprinkle it with a little bit of science fiction just to take, you know, just to colour the edges, and you get involved with, you know... Battlestar Galactica, it was all about the personal lives of these people. Yeah, there was science fiction there, but it was always about the personal struggle of these characters. Where extent to, you know, 80, 90% of the time, you know, it's science fiction is the, the goal. And then around the edges, there's these little stories sprinkled on, a little bit of characters sprinkled on. And that's not, for me, not how you do it. And like you see, it's just... I was so excited about this show, you know, I was thinking, oh, but here's another one, let's just, you know, let's take it. And I'm chuffed a bit with Amazon doing this, do you know what I mean, to have the kind of balls to kind of go out and produce these shows. And I was thinking, oh, is this going to be, you know, like a Game of Thrones with science fiction? And it's just so like, oh, dear, dear, man. Well, let me know, am I kind of totally missing the point here? And 
it's nice to have cool science fiction, you know, and kind of, yeah, we, we get a good story, you know what I mean, and characters develop after a time. Let me know. So, end of me rant. Apologise for that. <laughs> I normally don't, I normally don't like to do anything like that, but you know what I mean. Just been watching, I thought I'd share my feelings. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You buy the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.